This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with Martin Reeves, who is the chairman of the BCG, the Boston Consulting Group, Henderson Institute. I got interested in business strategy about five or six years ago when I ran across a book called The Lords of Strategy by Walter Keischel. And it started off with the background of Bruce Henderson. And oddly enough, at the end, Martin Rees is mentioned in this book. And it came out, what, 12 years ago or so? But I, I had no clue that strategy as a business tool, as a business concept, did not come into play until the late 60s, early 70s through the work of Bruce Henderson. So by way of introduction, Martin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. Um, So give me a little, I mean, your background, you've been with BCG for almost 32 years, but give me your, your background and then tell us a little bit about Boston Consulting Group. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm originally a, a biologist, uh, biophysics, and um, I, I've studied in Japan, and uh, I've always been interested in problem solving, and then I stumbled across consulting, which is essentially professional problem solving, and uh, joined BCG, and I've uh, been here, as you say, for more than 30 years, focused on strategy, and then in the last 10 years or so, on designing new approaches to strategy. So BCG, as you said, was founded in um, 1963 by Henderson, who was a pioneer of this quite young discipline, actually, of competitive strategy. And uh, following in his uh, uh, grand footsteps, uh, I, I now run the Henderson Institute, named after him, uh, which is focused on building ideas that leaders will need for their next game, taking inspiration not just from business, from, but from sciences and more broadly. Okay, but the Institute is not like BCG itself. You aren't working for particular clients. You're just ideating and projecting what should be going on in this evolving generation. Correct. That's right. So we we look at um, we look deep into business because often the new ideas in business come from businesses themselves. So we look for looking for anomalies or mavericks or interesting new ways of doing things within business and then also we go well beyond business we look at uh, macroeconomics and and computing and ecology uh, to pick up the ideas and the trends that we think may become important uh, in 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 future and then we develop them and we write about them and i take the ideas as far as piloting some of them with uh, clients and out of that and we're going to get to this in a couple of minutes uh you and jack fuller wrote the imagination machine that's right we we've both been interested in strategy for some time and it struck us that there was a, a bit of a hole in strategy which is the mental side of strategy the creative side of strategy as opposed to the deductive and analytical side of strategy so we just indeed uh, in a couple of days time we'll be launching the book the imagination machine cool Before we get into that, though, can you talk a little bit about Bruce Henderson's contribution? to business strategy. 
Yes, well, um, military strategy is, of course, thousands of years old. So strategy is not new. But competitive strategy, strategy applied to business, is actually quite, quite new. Um, the first references to competitive strategy are about very late 50s, um, early 60s. So BCG was founded in 1963 by, by Henderson. And at that time, uh, we had no distinction at all between practitioners and academics. There was a, a group of people, some of which were practitioners like Henderson, some of which were academics that were working in a ferment to, on the East Coast of the US to define this new discipline called competitive strategy. Somebody said to Bruce, nobody knows what competitive strategy or competitive advantage means. And he said, well, that's the beauty of it. We can, we can define it. Um, so the basic idea was that previously businesses had considered the particular thing that was being worked upon, the, the product or the organization, and looking at uh, you know, financials and efficiency. And Bruce said, well, you can look at it in a f- more fundamental way by looking at how companies compete and the basis for competitive advantage. Because you don't really want to be successful. You want to be successful relative to your competitors in a sustainable manner. So he uh, invented the um, experience curve. The experience curve is the idea that um, your costs will fall in a predictable manner as your experience accumulates. And that revolutionized the semiconductor industry because semiconductors are, semiconductors are very expensive to, uh, to develop. Um, but if you accumulate experience, uh, you can predict that the cost will fall at a certain uh, rate. And that led on to the idea of market share leadership. Um, uh, Bruce showed that if you, if you have market share leadership, it's a, uh, it's a virtuous circle because your experience will accumulate faster and your costs will fall faster uh, than competitors. So he said, you know, share leadership is incredibly important. And then that led on to the tool that's most often associated with him, which is the the growth share matrix. So I think many of your listeners will have heard of um, this matrix that uh, talks about cash cows and dogs and stars and question marks. And it's basically a way of allocating uh, cash um, away from unsuccessful for projects and towards potentially successful projects funded by older projects that are generating cash. They invented that in 1968. And at one point, about half of the Fortune 500 firms were, uh, were using that, which was a, a real triumph for this new discipline of uh, competitive strategy. Okay. Well, that leads me to why we're here today. I have a friend, we have a mutual friend, I think, at Harvard Business Review, uh, Felicia, who, who sends me uh, books on occasion. And a couple of months ago, she sent me the imagination machine. And her note with it was, and it's a personal note, which is rare. Usually she just sends me an email telling me it's coming. She said, uh, you're really going to enjoy this. I did. So what precipitated this particular book? Well, uh, I've worked on most aspects of strategy over the last um, 32 years of BCG. Um, but I, I always thought we needed to give more space for role of creativity um, in, in, in strategy. So I began to get interested in the idea of uh, imagination, the first thought of the thing that became a, uh, a product or something that uh, changed the world. So I, I read about the history of um, you know, how companies were founded, how, how the founders stumbled across the big idea. And um, it struck me that um, we need imagination now more than ever um, for for a very objective reason, which is that the the fade rate, the the rate at which excess returns or leadership fades has massively accelerated in recent years. 
Um, so the, for instance, the, in, in the Fortune 500 list, the proportion of industries where the top player has led for more than five years has, has halved um, since the early 60s. And um, outperformance, the, 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 jury, the time over which you can outperform your competitors has fallen on average from 10 years to about one year. And the big implication of that is big companies can't just coast on yesterday's business model. They now need to reinvent themselves. So that's the first reason, I think. The second reason is if you smooth out the cyclical variations, um, long-term growth rates are uh, declining. So GDP growth was about 5.5% in the uh, 1970s, and it's now about 3, 3.3%, uh, the long-term average. And that's because of demographics. The planet is, is, is aging, and therefore we can't really participate in growth, which generates most long-term value in business. We need to create it through innovation. And you may, now you may say, well, digital technology could change all of that. It could lead to a renaissance of growth. Yes, but that in itself would require the reimagination of business models. And then the third reason is that um, working with CEOs of large companies, I noticed that they had a uniform frustration, which is they often have an idea about how they need to change or reinvent or reimagine their companies. And it's a very hard thing to do in a large company. And we don't really have a playbook for imagination. If you, if you read about imagination, if you read about Steve Jobs, for example, it's often treated like imagination is treated like some divine inspiration, some uh, mysterious capability that only a few gifted individuals have. And we convinced ourselves by looking at the evidence that actually it was possible to systematically uh, shape and harness uh, imagination, at least as much as any other unpredictable has- aspect of human affairs. And if you think about it, businesses don't shy away from trying to manage human resources or consumer psychology. So, so why not imagination? So we decided uh, to create a handbook uh, or a playbook um, or a field guide, if you will, to imagination. And the result, I got to tell you, is a lot of fun to read and quite dense in the information provided. We are gonna take a break here. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I shall return with Martin Reeves right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Martin Reeves, the uh, chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, which is basically a business think tank and uh, again, the book is The Imagination Machine. But, you know, one of the things that immediately struck me in the book is some of the concepts. And I had to reread a couple of times. And the one that's recurrent is counterfactual thinking. Please explain. So typically we um, in business, we look at the world and we talk about the market share is the market is the need is. Uh, it's as if we're talking about um, facts. But in fact, we we have mental models of reality, uh, which are simplifications of reality, and we can change those mental models. And counterfactual thinking is the idea of creating mental models of things that don't yet exist. Because you think about it, what, what do entrepreneurs do? They take something that doesn't exist, may not even have a name, and then they cause it to become reality. They, they cause it to become an everyday uh, an everyday part of life. Um, so thinking about things which are not the case, but could be, that's counterfactual thinking, and that is central to uh, imagination. Our book is not only about imagination, it's about the broader process of harnessing imagination, not just having imagination, uh, but actually turning uh, imagination into uh, something concrete, into a business model, and uh, and keeping it alive um, in the face of success. Um, but that's that's what counterfactual thinking is. 
Okay, can can you take an example from the book? Yes. So I, I think Hire is a good example. The Chinese company Hire is now the world's largest uh, white goods appliances manufacturer. Um, so in the early 1980s, it acquired a new um, chairman, Zhang Riemin, who's a, actually a famous business thinker as well as uh, being the head of uh, Hire. And uh, at the time, they were making you know, fairly lackluster refrigerators, basically, you know, many, but not particularly high quality, not particularly differentiated. And he pulled um, 76 refrigerators off of the production line, even ones that had minor faults. And he asked the employees to smash them up. And, you know, what was he doing? So from perspective of just reality, he was destroying current value. From perspective of imagination, he was signaling that they needed to break with their mental model of what hire was and to aspire to be an innovator, to aspire to be a global company, to aspire to be a, a manufacturer of, uh, of quality goods. So that's imagination. You know, that act of destroying 76 refrigerators would make no sense at all unless he was imagining um, a different uh, mental model for, uh, for hire. So now we're all used to, um, you know, Uber and uh, uh, mobility services. And uh, another one of those that some people may have come across is a company called Churo, which we deal with in the book. Um, Churo is a way of using privately owned cars, um, often luxury cars, you know, Porsches and uh, uh, Mercedes and so on. So where did the idea of that came from? Well, the founder was cycling through the snow in Boston to pick up a, uh, a zip car. And uh, it was very cold. And, uh, you know, he was cursing because he had to cycle a mile to, uh, to, to reach a zip car. And he was passing lines of parked private cars. And he thought, why, why can't I use these private cars? Why, why doesn't somebody turn these unused cars into a market? So he imagined that that was possible. Counterfactual thinking was not the case, but he, he, he thought, well, that could be the case. And he delved into it and he found out the key problem was insurance, how to negotiate short-term insurance contracts for privately owned uh, cars. And um, he cracked that problem and created uh, a, a new reality, a great example of not only counterfactual thinking, but actually harnessing counterfactual thinking, create something of value. Well, that's not unlike Airbnb in a way. Absolutely. Airbnb um, uh, applied a, a similar concept to uh, private um, rooms and, uh, and properties, indeed. Okay. So um, I, want, I want to talk about the last... 14, 16 months. So have, have you noticed any um, companies really standing out during the pandemic, adapting, adopting new ways of doing business? Um, yes. I mean, you might think that a crisis is a pretty bad time to try new things. Um, but history says that actually crises are uh, the periods um, during which market share changes hands, new companies become leaders, and uh, new innovations and new needs are, are embraced. And COVID is, um, is, is no exception. So actually, Airbnb is a great example of that. So um, it's hard to think of a sector that wasn't more hard hit than uh, hotels, you know, hotels and airlines saw a 90% drop in, uh, in demand and had to f uh, follow uh, employees and, um, and reduce cash burn. Um, but Airbnb, and, and Airbnb did too, the demand for their services um, uh, declined. Um, but Airbnb recovered faster than the major hotel chains and gained, gained massive share. And how did they do that? 
they noticed that the needs had shifted. Demand was down overall, but the needs had shifted, and there was a greater demand for uh, accommodations in remote locations, socially distanced locations. It's obvious in retrospect, but they were the first to to pick up that signal. So they massively re-geared their portfolio. They acquired properties in um, in, in remote and uh, and suburban areas, satisfied that demand, uh, and uh, reoriented their business model and uh, came out of it with major advantage. Um, similar story with a Chinese cosmetics company called Ling Ching Chuan um, that saw a 90% collapse um, in its store sales during COVID. People didn't go into stores to, uh, uh, to, to buy cosmetics anymore. So they reconceived a new business model with um, online advisors, online beauty advisors. Um, they massively reallocated resources in that direction and actually increased uh, sales um, in a market that was uh, down rather dramatically um, and uh, came out of the crisis um, in, 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 in very good shape. And if you look at uh, hundreds of such examples, which we did, you find that actually an interesting thing about crises is that the competitive spread, which is the difference in performance between the top and the bottom quartile of companies, actually doubles during a crisis. So as the Formula One um, racing driver Ayrton Senna said, um, if you want to uh, lap the car in pole position, uh, if you want to overtake your competitors, a rainy day is the best time to do it because that's when there is a bigger dispersion in driving skill and that's when skill can be deployed to to advantage. So crises are not what they be. They're also wonderful opportunities for um, for gaining competitive advantage and for introducing new innovations to the world. Okay. Any, any other examples of uh, companies that really spiked during the pandemic? Um, well, another one is Zoetis. Zoetis is um, a, a manufacturer of um, medicines for, for animals. So meat consumption uh, declined uh, massively during the COVID crisis. So that wasn't good for their business. But they noticed that um, with people spending uh, more time at home, people were buying pets and uh, spending money on pets and taking good care of their their pets, as I saw you uh, doing with your own uh, cat, Mark. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and so they, um, noticing that signal, that anomaly, um, that shift in demand, uh, they mobilized around that and therefore did, uh, did very well. Um, another uh, company with a, a similar story is um, Stanley Black & Decker. So it makes um, construction equipment, um, electrical tools, and so on. The industrial part of the market was uh, hit by COVID, but with people spending time at home, they needed to build home offices. They noticed things that they needed to repair. They had time to repair them. So actually the, the home improvement, the home repairs market, the DIY market was very strong. And uh, they were uh, one of the first companies to notice that, to mobilize around that and have done uh, extremely well. So a lot of companies struggled to cope with declining demand early in the COVID crisis, um, but some are doing extremely well at coping with rapidly escalating demand right now in the recovery. Yeah, that, that's kind of funny because, you know, looking back at it, in hindsight, you think you could have predicted that people are going to be at home, they're going to be bored, maybe they'll buy a new sofa. Hey, why not some home repairs? Yeah, well, that's interesting. So I sometimes describe a crisis as a, strategically speaking, as a race to optimism. Um, so a crisis at the beginning feels like something bad that's happening to you. And you mainly think about defense. You know, how can I maintain my previous level of economic activity? Or how can I maintain my profitability? Uh, but sooner or later, um, something in the world is going to change and it's going to seem like an opportunity. 
Um, that's sort of obvious and eventually, in retrospect, is always obvious, but um, it's a race to optimism. Who, who is the first to see the constraint as an opportunity? And we've actually analyzed that using some um, semantic analytics. We now have sort of a, a tool which we didn't have when I started in consulting, which is we have ways of analyzing textual data and so you can analyze what a ceo is talking about what a customer is talking about and you can see that some companies were in an opportunity mindset extremely early in the crisis and um, others are just getting there now so so guess who's winning in 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 that race to optimism Um, yeah, I, I would imagine that would be a, a pretty easy thing to pick. Yes. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. The book is The Imagination Machine. The subtitle it really explains it. How to spark new ideas and create your company's future. I shall return with Martin right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Martin Reeves, the uh, chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, which is basically a business think tank. And uh, again, the book is The Imagination Machine. Uh, Get out there and buy this thing. Not only is it an intelligent read, it's a lot of fun as well. There's just a ton of stuff in here that should not only whet your appetite, but stimulate your imagination. So Martin, you keep coming back to the use of artificial intelligence in the book. What, what's the role here? Well, um, artificial intelligence is, is not a new thing, but it uh, has gained massive commercial traction uh, in the last couple of years uh, because of the Uh, availability of uh, data and uh, cheap computing power. Um, So now AI is better than human judgment uh, in many tasks. Uh, So for example, in diagnosing skin lesions, um, is the the mole on your hand uh, cancerous or not? Our AI is now better, more accurate than a dermatologist. And that's that's a hard thing to do. So one of the questions that arises is, well, what does that do to, to human work? And, um, we are heavily influenced here by the mathematician uh, Judea Pearl, who says that basically there are three types of cognitive activity. One of them is correlative thinking. Correlative thinking is if this happens, what else happens? So if I buy donuts, what else do I buy? I buy coffee. It doesn't tell you whether you buy coffee because you bought donuts or you buy donuts because you bought coffee, but it says those two things go together. And that's basically what the current generation of our AI is very good at. And so as a result of that, uh, a lot of what we call management will probably go away um, because anything that is to do with correlative thinking, if this happens, what else happens, um, project management, coordination, all of that can be, um, can be automated away. Fortunately, there are two other layers of thinking which AI cannot do yet. One of them is causal thinking, which is why did I buy the donuts? Was it because I bought the coffee or was it the other way around? Um, current generation of AI can't do that, although... Uh, that's something that's being worked upon. And then the third type of thinking is counterfactual thinking, which we've just been talking about, which is, which AI cannot do, and at least the current generation of AI will never be able to do, because you can't analyze the data and analyze the patterns for things that don't yet exist, which by definition, therefore, have no data associated with them. But human beings are rather good at that. Um, So some companies, not a lot yet, but this is something we write about in the book, 
explicitly are trying to shift the human cognition to high levels of value added. In other words, they're saying, let's not have the people do trivial routine things, which are going to go away anyway. Let's focus them on things that machines can't do, which is anything to do with um, empathy or creativity or, you know, reframing problems, fr- framing and, and reframing problems. So that's another reason to, uh, uh, to write the book, actually, which is to, uh, to think ahead uh, for the uh, implications of the rise of AI for the future of human work. Okay. You just made me think while we're doing this, and I'm, I'm starting to float away from questions, but I don't want to do that yet, because the next question I want to ask is one that I'm sure you faced a number of times. When I go in to meet with a management team, or if by chance, if any board members are there, there's always this hierarchical structure. And we've been there, we've done that, this is the way we do things. I hear that a lot, by the way, about you know social platforms, especially LinkedIn. We don't do things that way. Well, you know, good luck, Jack. The world's changed. But how how do you combat that type of thinking? Who leads the charge internally? Well, hierarchy is not a bad thing in itself. Um, uh, it goes back to Adam Smith, the subdivision of tasks. Um, so, so Adam Smith's. Uh, uh, you know, pin makers, you know, one worker makes the heads and the other one makes the shafts of the pins. You can, they can specialize, you can subdivide the work. Uh, you can create a, a hierarchy or an organization that can subdivide the work and get it done more efficiently. Um, it's ter- terrible for innovation though, and imagination, because an idea which doesn't spread not only is not adopted, but it doesn't evolve because the idea needs to pass through multiple minds, which think in different ways in order to evolve. And also it needs to be embraced. It needs to be embraced internally. Uh, it needs to be embraced by investors. It needs to be embraced by customers. And, and the hierarchical and the uh, siloed structure of many firms is, uh, greatly inhibits the spread and the development of ideas. So some ways around that. Um, one of them is, is, is uh, festivals, actually. So we, we talk about a company, Recruit, a Japanese company in the book, um, that believes that ideas spread uh, through using what they call festivals. And uh, what they mean by that is uh, they create um, meetings which incorporate people from right across the firm, and they celebrate entrepreneurial heroes, the people that create new businesses, and they invite people to... Uh, submit new projects which could, could become new businesses and the qualification to get the first round of funding is that you have somebody that wants to join your team that's the only uh, bar later there are higher bars but anybody can create one of these projects and they celebrate in the style of a festival um, the the new ideas why because they want to signal that the most important people in the firm are not the people that are managing thousands of people with yesterday's idea they're the people that are creating the new versions of that they 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 call them the entrepreneurial heroes and they they celebrate them so that's anti-hierarchical um it's forward-looking and also um I, i spoke to the head of this system and 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 he said the whole point is also to inspire people and have them believe that anybody can do this or this is what we do we're not in the we're not in the business of running a particular business we're in the business of creating new businesses a second uh, technique which can be used which um uh, people will also find in the book is uh, is games we think that play is very important uh, so as a, a former biologist i find play fascinating and often very absent from the workplace uh, so what is what is play biologically play is de-risked learning why do little boys play with plastic swords because 
they can uh, they can learn about combat and 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 self defense safely and and quickly and the same thing can be true of a company you can you can experiment with new ideas and broaden your horizons a lot faster than actually physically building things um, if you play and so we have uh, 12 games in the book uh, which are designed for executives uh, to make them aware of the unspoken assumptions of their current mental models and allow them to have some fun uh, without fear by breaching the taboos of breaking and reversing some of those unspoken assumptions uh, in order to broaden horizons in order to consider new possibilities do you have any companies you can name them or not who have done this and and demonstrate the the use internally absolutely um the, these the games were designed to be played by by companies um now it's early days because we're still um pioneering this but of course we um you know as a practitioner i write primarily about um you know what i uh, what i do rather than what could theoretically be the case um so uh, yes we've done what it, one of the games is called the bad customer game the bad customer game says that if you ask the question a very narrow question to your customers you're likely to get a very positive response um if you ask are our existing loyal customers happy with our current products um, it's circular right of course they're happy because they're your loyal customers your loyal customers are by definition the ones that are still buying your products so if you ask that question in your customer research um you might conclude that there's no need to change anything at all if you ask a different question which is who who stopped using our products um who doesn't like our products who never used our products which needs are we not serving of our loyal clients what are they going elsewhere for even our loyal customers so the so called bad customers you get a very different story you then see a lot of needs a lot of things that could be different a lot of things that could be fixing and a very spectacular um example of uh, this sort of approach is the indian branch of unilever uh hindustan unilever so this was always a very high performing company a much celebrated company a pioneering company a very high performing company um but around 2008 uh they were losing their mojo a little bit um results were not bad but they were plateauing and the uh ceo uh, at the time who's now the coo of unilever overall a gentleman called nitin paranjpe um he said we we need to get out uh into the world um we need to get surprised um we need to find out the possibilities for improvement and he sent everybody in the company including the receptionists and the janitors into the field with five questions uh and and everybody came back with uh, answers to these questions and they went from having few ideas to hundreds of ideas that they pursued and 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 turned around uh, and turned around the company so i I'd, i'd say not the majority of companies uh, play these sorts of games but um uh but but some do successfully and i i think that many more should and and there's probably some sort of evidence that shows that the companies do these not only retain market share but grow market share absolutely uh, another one of the games for example is the friction game um which a uh a certain um high profile tech company uses and the, the idea of the friction game is many people talk about disruption in business right now many with for good reason namely that many incumbent business models are being dis- disrupted by digital challenges so with disruption you can take a wild guess at what you think may be disrupted um or you can wait until you are disrupted but it might be it might be too late um or you can play the friction game so the friction game basically says um imagine an ideal business where there is no friction um and and by that they mean 
no misunderstanding. Everybody understands your product. There are no quality issues. Um, there's no delay. When you want it, you, you have it immediately. There's no intermediation cost. You don't have to pay a middleman 20% margin to deliver the thing. And then you say, you look at your business and you say, well, where do we depart from the frictionless business? And typically any business has massive friction. So for example, take insurance. Uh, friction number one, you know, people don't understand their insurance contract. You know, friction number two, um, uh, you probably can't insure what you want to insure. Um, you know, friction number three, it's very hard to compare your insurance contract with some other insurance contract. It's different on too many dimensions. You know, friction number four, if you make a claim, you know, probably it'll be dis- disputed and it will take a while to resolve, full of frictions. So you go through the exercise saying, well, logically, if somebody were to disrupt my business, they would go after eliminating these frictions. And, and so one by one, you take these frictions, you figure out how much they're costing the customer or costing you. And you, you don't ask if um, you can eliminate these frictions. You say, were it an existential imperative to eliminate this friction, how would we do it? Um, and by doing this for all of the frictions, you can get ahead of, uh, you can get ahead of disruption. Uh, you can look forward. Uh, you can see opportunity. And it sounds like an easy game, um, but actually it's not so easy because often our assumptions about what is possible and what the frictions are um, are, are hidden because we've been doing business a certain way for a very long time. Um, so we take for granted that, yeah, of course, an insurance contract needs to be very, very complicated. Uh, it's, it's necessarily the case. Um, of course, we have to pay people to distribute the products. Of course, it takes a while to resolve claims. Well, a disruptor would not look at it that way. They would say, well, let me think of a way of, uh, I have no choice but to, if I want to defeat the incumbent, but to question some of those assumptions. Cool. We're going to take a break. The book, again, is The Imagination Machine, uh, available everywhere. The website, by the way, for the Institute is bcghendersoninstitute.com. And there's a ton of information there as well. And uh, Martin actually has a co-authored blog post there, a new post up uh, that I'm planning on reading after we're done recording today. So uh, we shall return right after this to wrap up. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Martin Reeves, the chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Uh, Martin's new book with Jack Fuller is The Imagination Machine. Uh, we've been discussing that for the last uh, almost 30 minutes or so. Um, one of my favorite things about this book is the use of, uh, you can call them graphics, but basically you have a ton of cartoons in here and they they really add a lot of value. But um, tell, tell me about why you, you approached it this way. Well, we wanted the book to be an example of what the book was about. And we wanted to take an imaginative approach, a, a playful approach. And... Um, so nowadays, um, you know, many executives don't have an enormous amount of time to read. They work very hard. Um, so we wanted the book to be modular so that people could dip in and out and also visual. Uh, so we used a lot of um, uh, diagrams and, uh, and, and cartoons. And um, it turns out that um, Jack's father um, is actually an architect and a, and a, and a rather good uh, illustrator. Uh, that's my co-author, Jack Fuller. And um, so we asked uh, Jack's father to, to produce some cartoons. And um, it turned out to be um, quite an interesting exercise because 
that, that humor is actually close to innovation. Humor, innovation often involves breaking taboos, questioning assumptions, and uh, things that don't fit. You know, taboos broken are often the a key essential um, you know, aspect of, 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 of humor, but it needs to be sort of quite precise. So the great thing about um, uh, uh, Jack's father was that we could spend time explaining the ideas and then he would sort of capture it in a, in a, in a slightly ironic, uh, ironic way. So that's where the cartoons ca came from. Um, so, it's, so it's about, um, it's about playfulness. It's about um, uh, accessibility. Um, it's, it's about, um, you know, drawing attention to the idea by enveloping it with a little bit of uh, uh, humor. It worked. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so you know that my audience is primarily uh, government government contractors, and when you talk about regulated industries, it doesn't get much more regulated than this. Can this approach work in a regulated environment? Well, regulation, in some sense, is 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 uh, you know a barrier to, to to innovation. Of course, if you if it's illegal to do certain things, you, you can't do them. Um, but I, I think it's often used as uh, an excuse. Uh, our industry is very regulated, so therefore we can't do anything. Um, but innovation and disruption exist um, in, in regulated uh, industries, um, uh, like pharmaceuticals, for example, um, as, as much as it exists elsewhere. In fact, we've just witnessed a major disruption. We, uh, we thought we knew the the, the rules, the very clear rules of uh, vaccine uh, development. You know, it takes many years and is very complicated and requires all sorts of tests. And then we had to develop a vaccine in uh, a very small fraction of the time that we we normally um, would would use. And and we and, and we did it. You know, and and so my guess is that probably pharmaceutical regulation may, may change as a result of that. We showed ourselves that we we can in fact do that. Um, also relevant here, I think, is that constraints um, are often your friend as, as, as an innovator because a constraint forces new ways of, of, of thinking things. You have to work, think your way around um, a, uh, a, a, a constraint. And there are many examples in, um, in the public sector of, um, of innovation in the book. So one of them is, for instance, in education. We talk about the, the birth and the codification and the diffusion of the Montessori system of education. So a very different way of... Um, uh, educating kids that sort of ripped up the rule book for at the time uh, for how, how one educates kids. Now there are 20,000 Montessori schools. There's a successful innovation in the public sector. Um, I was talking to a senior official in the Singapore government, which is a very uh, enterprising government. And um, you know, he was telling me about a project they had where they needed to um, they needed to deeply question existing ways of doing things. And so it was a, it was a military project. And they, um, so one of the success metrics was the number of complaints received. Um, so they, they put a general in charge of the project and, um, uh, and they assessed the number of complaints received because this, if they were doing this thing right, it would ruffle feathers. Um, and in fact, they, uh, uh, the person running the project didn't get full marks the first time around because People are too happy. It didn't ruffle feathers enough. So there's an example of disruption in the public sector. Um, I once had the pleasure of um, an, an example closer to home for you. I once had the pleasure of uh, talking with um, General Martin Dempsey, who was the uh, a former um, head of the Joint uh, Chiefs of, of Command, the uh, head of the U.S. military, effectively. And I asked him how he reconciled 
the discipline of this massive hierarchy, the, the U.S. Army, uh, the U.S. Armed Forces, with the need for agility uh, when fighting um, uh, a terrorism and very, uh, very fast-acting threats. And, and he told me that one of his major innovations um, uh, in this very regulated public uh, sector space was um, to increase failure rates and free in elite education courses within the military. And, um, and he explained this to me as follows. He said, if you have a military where the top has never failed, um, you know, they have immaculate uh, success records on all of their courses, it probably means they never tried. Um, and he said, that's not the sort of leader that we need in a turbulent world. We need leaders that have fallen flat on their face and then gotten up again. So he was interested in not the people that never made a mistake, but the people who had failed and recovered. He was interested in resilient leaders. Um, so there's an example of a very profound innovation in the public sector. And I, I, could, I, I could go on. The UK uh, government's experiments with uh, deliver, what, uh, what they call, I think, deliverology. Um, so it's the idea that a lot of emphasis in policymaking often goes into the making of the policy, but relatively little into tracking what actually happened and then going back and improving the policy to create a learning cycle. So there is um, a unit within the UK government that, um, uh, that has done that. One could mention DARPA, this very successful, um, almost like a, a venture capital um, uh, organization um, uh, within, uh, associated with the US military that you know, pioneers new, new technology um, applications you know, with, a, with a fantastic track record. So we shouldn't use regulation or public sector as an excuse for not being able to think imaginatively. Cool. Give me some final thoughts here. So I think our, our, our big messages are essentially that imagination is more important than ever for, 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 every, for every company, for, for every government. Um, we need to embrace it because the routine aspects of our jobs as managers will probably be replaced by uh, artificial intelligence at some stage. And um, the biggest message, I think, is that um, of, of course, one, one cannot perfectly predict the, the future or perfectly manage innovation, but we can uh, manage and, and harness innovation a lot more systematically than we might believe. Those will be the key messages, I think. Martin, I can't thank you enough for joining me. Uh, the book is The Imagination Machine by Martin Reeves, Jack Fuller. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure. This is not my day job. I do advise companies on all aspects of marketing to the government. Some of those happen to be uh, imaginative and some of them aren't. Um, depends on the situation. If you, if you need help there or if you're interested in the concept of social selling, drop me a line, markamtower at gmail, and thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. need auto parts, O'ReillyAuto.com is just a few clicks away. We offer convenient options for you to get your parts quickly. Order online and pick up for free at your local O'Reilly Auto Parts store. We'll even bring it out curbside. Or you can have your parts delivered right to your door with free shipping on most orders over $35. Visit O'ReillyAuto.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.
Arts. <laughs>